Hello and welcome back to the Boar Sport Podcast. And after a little break, we're finally back with another episode. It's been a while, largely because I think we've all been adjusting slightly to the stresses and strains of full-time university life. But here we are, finally, with season two of the podcast. So I thought, as this is the first episode of my idea of season two, I thought we could do a kind of general reintroduction episode to start off with. I've got three lovely new deputies who have come into the section a couple of weeks ago and have already done a great job in easing the workload off my shoulders and with them I'll discuss effectively their sporting interests and and their involvement in the section. We'll then go on to discuss some of the more pressing sporting issues of the day which will then hopefully go up on the site's kind of relic of the YouTube channel which is a new idea that the that the depths have put forward and we hope to get that up and running once again. So two of the deputies who are Mitchell Ryan and Jack McRae. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll know them well. So I thought I'd start off with the two of them before coming to Toby Farmer. So Mitchell, first of all, I would like you to kind of describe your sporting self. So what sports into you in what sports are you into? What football team do you support? And what's your earliest sporting memory? So let's start off with what sports are you into? Um, I mean, as you've already referenced with the what football team are you into? Um, yeah, unbelievably basic, but yes, football is the main one, mm-hmm. primary focus of all of us here, I believe. Um, I'm into ice hockey as well, uh, a little bit of cricket, uh, catch the boxing when I can, but you know, gotta be up late for that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, for, as regular listeners know, I am. The last remaining member of the Man City Supporters Club here on the the Borsport podcast. My buddy Ben's gone, but um, I'm still I'm still waving the blue flag here. Um, earliest sporting memory, uh, probably getting bodied in an under nines football match in uh, <laughs> back in primary school. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's one memory I'm not gonna <laughs> never gonna live down. I don't think, but um, you know, that, there's nothing like a good harsh introduction to the world of world of sport and that was that was mine out of interest Mitchell are you are you the kind of modern Man City fan or are you proper like hardcore (laughs) well I've been around since before before the big bucks came in um modern in the sense of I'm I'm not 50 plus sure but like yeah no I, I have been around a while I'm not a I'm no glory supporter if you will I have been I have been raised in city but yeah, no, I'm um, I'm glad about the state we're in right now, if that's what you mean. <laughs> and now, Jack, I know I know your sporting exploits on the football pitch personally. Yeah. <laughs> a great centre half slash uh, central midfielder, although I'm not sure you think you're a centre half. And <laughs> so, centre half, yeah. <laughs> so could you fill us in on your what sports you're into? Um what team you support and your greatest sporting memory or your earliest sporting memory? Um, so football, as I'm sure the regular listeners, listeners will know, um, is football's my main sport, along with cricket. I played both of them my whole life pretty much. Um, and boxing as well. Uh, rugby, I, I watch a bit. The international, don't know too much about club rugby, but internationals I'd watch. Um, I'd say they're main for tennis as well, potentially. I guess you could throw in. Um, but mainly football, cricket, 
and I know England are playing New Zealand at the moment, um, so I might be keeping an eye, half an eye on that. Um, I'm a big Arsenal fan, and unlike Mitchell, since I've started supporting them, it's gone downhill. Um, <laughs> my dad often says it's a strange coincidence that since I was born, it's all gone well. It was great for the first couple of years when I didn't really know what was going on, and then ever since we've slowly started to decline, but. It's, it's on the go on the path upwards, hopefully, at the moment. Um, and my earliest sporting memory. Oh, well, the first game I ever went to was an Arsenal Watford. It was in 2006. Uh, Thierry Henry scored. Um, so that's probably my earliest memory, I guess. Um, the 2006 World Cup, just before that as well, is when I properly fell in love with football I'd say mm-hmm. so you've always if a regular listeners of the podcast will know that you've always stuck by Mikel Arteta Jack so are you awesome. happy you happy now with your with your oh, um, kind of loyalty are you being vindicated uh, yeah I do I, I always said it was going to take its time um, and I mean it's, it's still going to be up and down we're just in a great period at the moment next and we'll probably get hammered 3-0 and then back to the Arteta Albergrave singing their chance but no it's it's going to take time I'm still very much in the process or whether it's been labelled but yeah I'm optimistic good to hear and Toby you you like Mitchell have had a good few years in footballing terms because I understand you're a fan of Liverpool so is football again your primary sport as well? And and how long have you supported Liverpool? Why are you so into them? Well, I mean, I hate to I hate to carry on the trend of football being the popular sport, but I think that's uh, I, I can't lie. Uh, but I I remember specifically the England uh, versus Trinidad and Tobago clash uh, in in the second. I think it was a match day two in the World Cup, and I remember that was my first kind of memory of sport and a football is that 2006 2006 yeah Mm -hmm. uh and it was Steven Gerrard who scored with his left foot uh towards the end of the game and Peter Crouch with a towering header and uh and I fell in love with uh mainly Gerrard I mean because I I'd started to play centre mid myself but not anymore I was slowly moved to the back but uh but no I mean Liverpool since then I've, I've 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 fallen in love with really and uh my granddad is a is a supporter as well, so we kind of we've gone up to the games and things like that. And it's been um, it's it ha- it wasn't great for long, um, but now it's kind of it's picked up and it's I'm very happy. Mm. I've got a particular question for you, Toby. On your Facebook and Twitter profile picture, I'm not sure if it's, is it a real or a fake. I want to know with, this with, too. with Messi, or <laughs> is is it is it fake? I'll I'll, I'll leave. I'll leave, I mean, if those uh, if those want. If anyone wants to go on and uh, check themselves, uh, they can see for themselves. But uh, what I'm going to say is that he was uh, he was very nice. Oh, Jesus. And, uh... <laughs> I'm even more confused now, to be honest. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say it's not a real photo. Oh, Toby. Let's draw on our hopes and dreams. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. Just false propaganda, man. Like. <laughs> Take it down. Change your profile picture now. Like. 
he was very glad to meet me as a, as a young yeah, I can girl. Imagine, I can imagine. Wearing a so you're a big idol. <laughs> right. So now, now you know all three deputies, all lovely people, as I'm sure you'll you'll see and listen and understand. Um, I thought we'd now turn to some of the kind of more topical sporting issues of the day, just to give an in, kind of introduction before we go more in depth later later on in this in this series of the Borsport podcast. So one topic that has been sparking lots of debate around the country throughout the past couple of months and which has been quite entertaining because it's got to do with Man United and their fan base which is yeah which is only slightly worse than Arsenal's when it comes to loving the fact that their team does badly um, <laughs> is is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the question of whether or not he's right for the club and whether or not he should be sacked so I'm very firmly of the opinion that he'd be sacked but I'm also of the opinion that as long as Man United do badly, I'm loving life. So, so it's kind of based on both worlds at the minute. So, Toby, to start off with, in your eyes, what's what's gone badly for Solskjaer and Man United? Well, I think he's kind of. I think he knows. Even he knows he's not the manager that Manchester United need. Uh, you know, if, if they're kind of, if they're kind of wanting to get to the levels where Liverpool, Chelsea, Man City are, they're going to need a top coach. It's it almost feels more important to have the best coach in the world rather than the best players in the world. Uh, and it seems like Solskjaer, you know, with Mulder and Cardiff on his CD, CV, is, you know, he's not going anywhere near that. Um, and so I think he's, the reason why he's done a good job up till now is because he kind of knows he's not one of those top managers. And you see in the big games, I mean, always against Man City, they kind of caused them problems by sitting deep and countering and all this thing. And they were being reactionary and that kind of worked for Solskjaer. But, now he's brought in Ronaldo, Varane, Sancho, all these kind of the big players. Uh, it feels like he's kind of given a false sense of entitlement as a big club, maybe. And he's kind of trying to enforce his own kind of coaching ide ideology when he doesn't necessarily have one, <laughs> I think it's would say. But it seems, it seems like he's kind of, this is as far as he can take. Manchester United and it feels like they're going to have to have a top coach to take them to that next level So you're kind of suggesting there Toby that it's kind of tactical defects with Solskjaer that's kind of holding them back so Jack I don't know if you consider yourself a bit of a tactical expert but could, do you agree and what, what do you think is Solskjaer doing wrong tactically that's kind of exposing Man United to these defeats to Liverpool and Man City so comprehensively. Yeah, I don't, it's the problem with Solskjaer. I don't think he's the worst manager in the world. I think he's very good man on the man management man man management side. Um, but tactically, he has been found out on multiple occasions. Um, it's almost an over reliance on almost a moment of brilliance. It feels as if he tells his team, "I'll oh, just go out and." enjoy yourself, which can work because he's got brilliant players at his disposal. Um, but it's, he, he, when it comes up to those games where he's up against a manager or even a manager who's not even as experienced as him but got any sort of tactical nails about them. I mean, Arteta, for example, I know I might be slightly biased, but hasn't beaten Arteta with a better team. Um, and Arteta's only been 
it's only two, three years into his management career, where Solskjaer is about 11, 12. He's lacking in a lot of areas where he's playing this sort of defensive line, like a deep defensive line and plays on the counter-attack, which works and has worked. And I think he was the perfect appointment at the time. Um, but he has taken them as far as he can. He'll, they'll never win a Premier League title or Champions League with Solskjaer as their manager. Um, so, yeah, I feel he they need to make the change um, and upgrade on Solskjaer if they're to win anything significant, which we know Man United are craving. Mm-hmm. But it's not that he's done a bad job. It's just he can't. He's, it's not his fault, but he's not quite capable of getting the most out of, the, out of his players and really masterminding a tactical masterclass over um, any other manager in the league, really. Mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing quite a revealing interview where he was asked what his footballing philosophy is, which is kind of the trademark kind of term these days of football managers use and he said that his philosophy he doesn't believe that tactics are very important and he thinks it's all about man management and getting your players up for going out on the pitch and I think that's just an extremely short-sighted way of looking at football these days I mean if you look at the top top coaches in the world you've got Conte, Zidane, Guardiola, Klopp, they all have like proper footballing philosophies. They've all got tactics, whether they're defensive or attacking or, or possession. They've, they've all got... And then they've also got the man management side as well, particularly Klopp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they've got the best of both tactics and man management. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah. Even even as a man, I have to say that you you you're all saying that Solskjaer has been great. He has done a good job, and he's got Man United back to kind of around where they belong. But maybe this is just me as a Dutchman and a Donny Van der Beek fan coming through. But I've never liked the bloke at all. I think people say he's a good man manager, but you look at the way he's handled Donny. I think that's been horrendous. Mm-hmm. You've got a good up and coming footballer who you've not given a chance to. You've kept him on the bench giving him something like 15 minutes of Premier League football this season. That's not good man management. And it's just the way he handles himself is so arrogant. You kind of, you, I get a bad feeling off him. It's like when Frank Lampard was manager of Chelsea. It's like they think they're entitled to be there when they're just not. And there are managers who deserve to be there instead of them. So yeah, I, I'm, I, I dislike the man and I dislike the manager. So get him out as soon as possible. Do you think do you think you should go, Mitchell? And if so, who do you who do you think should replace uh, him? As, no, as so shy for life. Mate. I don't know <laughs> what you're on about. Just give him like a lifetime contract, like with, with Iniesta at Barca. You know, just like no, he needs to go. He like realistically, you know, it's, Oli is a manager who has made not only his playing career but his entire management career out of like last minute wonder. You know, like <laughs> you know, coming up when they need him. Uh, coming out of a pinch he, he's not a good man manager I don't think he's got his favourites in the side I think he's he's friendly and that's possibly his greatest strength and his greatest weakness as well is that he is like he's a really nice guy I'm sure um, and he's clearly like he clearly has a thing for trying to play players that are out of form back into form. So like you look at Fred, you look at McTominay, 
you know, players that aren't really doing all that well this season in, in Premier League football. And yet Donny van der Beek is sat wasting away on the bench whilst, you know, Fred continues to play wayward passes and sky free kicks and whatnot. So, yeah, I don't think he's a manager that knows enough. I don't think he's got enough of a tactical approach about him. Um, he came in at the right time because Man United was screaming out for a manager that, like, you know, played into the club's ideals. They wanted someone like Frank Lampard, who was, you know, going to get the whole club's support because of the history that he has with them. But now they've, like like pretty much everyone has said, he's taken in, taken them to the point that, like, he can't go any further. He's He's done everything he can. Full credit to him for lasting this long, but he's not the man for Man United right now. And so who is the man then, Mitchell? Who should replace him? Say you're a Man United fan. I know it's like the worst <laughs> worst possible prospect in the world. But say you were, who would Jeez. replace him? Um, well, obviously, a few weeks ago, I'd have said Conte, but now I think best case scenario you're looking at is a Zidane, I suppose. Haul him back in from wherever he's gone. Um, you know, he, he, he's he's another one that sort of came out of the blue when he went to Real Madrid, but, you know, he did a brilliant job. He's another one that's like a club legend sort of vibe, but he won three Champions Leagues on the bounce. You can't doubt a man that's done that regardless of you know, what his tactics are or anything, you know, he's, he's got the record to say, yes, I'm a trophy winner. And Man United need trophies. So it seems like perfect marriage in my head, but I don't know what the others think of that. Any other opinions, any other names to throw into the hat, do you think? I think it's quite, I think it's quite, oh, sorry, go on, Jeff. I was just saying, it might, it might upset Mitchell a bit, but I don't think... Don't do it. Roberto Mancini would be a terrible appointment. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think he would go to United. Um, other options like Luis Enrique, uh, Graham Potter's one, um, who I really like, but I don't know whether the step up from Brighton to Man United would be wise. I think Zidane's the obvious choice, but you need, well, you need a manager that can deal with the big egos and someone like Zidane or Mancini or Luis Enrique they've I mean Barcelona Real Madrid two biggest clubs in the world Man City fairly small club big players um, Oi. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they need that sort of appointment but none, I feel they want someone who plays quite attacking football as well um, so I don't think Conte would have been the best fit in the world um, but yeah mm-hmm. and Toby well I think that's it. the reason why he's still in a job I think why well, Edward is going to it was no longer going to be there in a few weeks time I think but um, and things might change after that but I don't know if there's anyone out there at the moment for Manchester United I think that we, we talked about Conte but even then the kind of philosophies don't really match up the I, the reason why I think he'll probably stay towards the end of the season is because I don't think there's. You say Zidane, but I, even then, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's the right approach for them. They've had managers in the past. They've had, uh, you know, Van Gaal, Mourinho. They've gone down kind of different roads before uh, with those sort of managers, and it hasn't worked out for them. They've got a better squad this time, which might work out. But um, I think there's no one really who sticks out to me at the moment. 
Dean Smith has just been sacked by Aston Villa. So. <laughs> As is Steve Bruce. Bruce. Steve Bruce and <laughs> Bruce, yeah. Man Club United legend. Club legend. Yeah, why not? Well, kind of on the topic of um, club legends as well. Um, Toby threw up a topic which I think is quite interesting. And Barcelona have gone down the route of appointing their club legend again. So Xavi has come in and kind of following on from the trend of appointing heroes of the club in the past. So you've got Solskjaer, Zidane, Pirlo, Lampard. It's kind of a trend that they've been following. So I was just wondering if any of you had any... Well, I, I doubt any of you are followers of Qatari football, but um, do you have any ideas of how you think Xavi will do at Barcelona and whether he can solve this kind of problem, that Bar- this rut that Barcelona have been in over the past few years? Toby, you kind of brought up the topic, so I'd be wondering if you've got any opinions on that. Uh, I, I mean, as you say, I'm not a massive follower of uh, Qatari football or, mm-hmm. how, or how he's done it outside. I gather he's done okay, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure whether okay is good enough for Barcelona. I mean, if you look back at when they've been really, really successful, they've had, you know, Johan, when Cruyff was the manager, they won kind of four consecutive leagues, and then Guardiola came in and did amazingly in that time, two Champions Leagues in 2008-2012. It feels like if you're going to get to a kind of level of success, which Barcelona are happy with, playing a certain style of football, you've got to be one of the best coaches there's ever, there's ever been. Uh, and I think the re- reason why I say I'm not too sure with Xavi is because at the time when Guardiola came about, you know, he'd only coached Barcelona the B team. There very much might be the case where, you know, Xavi might be a, an excellent manager, but we don't really know. Whether I probability is unlikely, but I mean, there's the kind of the mess that he's got to sweep up at Barcelona is quite big and uh, it, it's looking unlikely, really. I'd say. Well, the thing is, yes, there's a mess at Barcelona that everyone knows about, but at the same time, if you look at the squad that Barcelona still do have, you could say that Ronald Koeman, as much as I would like to back him as a Dutchman, you would say that he probably un- underperformed. If you look at the spine of the team, they've got mm-hmm. PK, Eric Garcia, who was a big prospect at City in the past, at the back, and Araujo, who's a great player. Midfield, you've got Pedri, Gavi, Busquets, Frankie de Jong. Up front, you've got Ansu Fati, Memphis Depay, Usman Dembele. I mean, it's still a good team. So... I was, yeah, I, think... I just think it's a mess in the sense that it's it's they're kind of they Barcelona have this kind of philosophy which has kind of fallen behind the you know it's very popular now to be this kind of German approach you know gegenpressing, pressing this kind of Ralph Rangnick kind of school of thought and Barcelona like are still trying to play that kind of that tiki taka free flowing kind of you know, um, possession based style of football when it doesn't it might work in Spain sometimes but. In the Champions League, it you know they come undone so easily, and it feels particularly at the back in defence. It feels like that's where there's a, a bigger mess than we want, what we might see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack, I was wondering, as a, you could say that the situation now where Barcelona is relatively similar to how well, not in terms of a financial sense, but in terms of the quality of the playing squad that Arsenal have been in over the past few years so do you see I mean Xavi you could say in terms of his philosophy in terms of his football upbringing is of a similar school to Arteta 
So do you see this appointment working out well or how do you see it kind of panning out? Yeah, so I think it's the right appointment uh, for Barcelona at this current time. I haven't obviously seen a lot of Qatari football. Um, I know our Sad and Santa Gisela doing very well, but it's good, a completely different league. And But I do think it's the right appointment at the right time because there's not going to be any real pressure on Xavi at the moment. So, like you were saying with Arteta, this first sort of last seven months of the season it's sort of a free hit for him where he can sort of begin to experiment begin to see who's in his plans who isn't there's a lot of deadwood that needs to be got rid of they've struggled to get rid of this deadwood already but he will begin to see where he wants to build the side and he's got a young a lot of young bright stars coming particularly midfield I mean Gavi Pedri and De Jong's one of three of the best young midfielders in the world. So there's a lot of talent at his disposal. Is whether he can sort of manage this and begin to bring in the right players. Because Barcelona's transfer strategy over recent years has been appalling. Uh, is to, whether to get the right blend of senior players and youth or whether he sort of takes the Arteta approach and focuses on youth and then for Barcelona... I don't know whether they'll be as patient if results don't start coming. But I think it will be a success, mm-hmm. generally. Mm-hmm. And Mitchell, your thoughts? Obviously, Man City are a club that are linked to Barcelona in many ways. You've got Tixaki, whatever his name is, Bergestein or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah. and um, what's his name? Ferrano, Serrano, the other bloke. Yeah. 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 So, and so Pep, see, obviously. And Pep, obviously. So do you, see, <laughs> do you see this working out well for Xavi at Barcelona? Uh, I really hope it does. But I'm just sort of afraid. Like, I mean, I put a poll out on the Instagram, I think, just two days ago. And that was a fairly, fairly unanimous response to that one of not many people think Xavi's going to do well. Um, this isn't for me this isn't a Xavi issue though because I don't think Xavi's an awful manager obviously like everyone else here haven't watched much of the Qatari Super League mm-hmm. I've seen a few you know the odd highlight goes round about of outside playing like Tiki Taka or whatever um, and you know it looks good on the face of it I think he's got the right ideals he's got the right philosophies for Barcelona Um then at the same time, arguably Ronald Koeman did as well. So I don't know if that you know really means anything at this point. Um, yeah, he's got a big job on his hands, but you know, like like it's been said, he hasn't got an awful lot of pressure on his shoulders right now because he's midway through a season where the only way is up, really. Because if he finishes where they are now, then this is goodbye Barcelona's bank account because no European football means that billion dollar debt isn't going to get any any lighter. But um, yeah, it's a very, very big task. I really hope he does well. And if he's pep, if he's pet mark too, then maybe City have got a new manager in a few years. That'd be amazing. Um, but no, it's gonna be it's gonna be a struggle for sure. Mm-hmm. Because this is such a sad situation. Because you compare Barca now to how they were three, four years ago, even. And you look at, yeah. I mean, in Spain, attendances are allowed to be hundred percent full now. And Barcelona mm. are allowed to have 90,000 fans in their stadium. They've got like 40,000, 50,000. 
and you see all the even against uh, Real Madrid for El Clasico, it's just the the season ticket holders just aren't showing up, and that's just it's just quite a sad situation. So hopefully, hopefully everything sorts itself out there, and Chavi Chavi is a success. But um, I kind of want to move away from football now because if you've listened to the podcast up to this point, you'll probably be wondering if the ball sport is actually just ball football, which we're very firmly not. So there are a few that were not. There are all all the other sports in the world we have articles about from Toby's uh, strongest man. He's he's a strong man himself, so he, he likes, oh, he likes to that sport. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would show off. <laughs> yeah, go on. Lad. To swimming and also to Formula One, which is a big sport. We have Reese Goodall, who's unfortunately not on the podcast today, but he does these amazing reports week in, week out. He's done them for like three years, and that man is just a monster when it comes to writing. He's on another level. He's, he's written over a thousand articles. The man churns them out like, dude, how? And but unfortunately, he's not here today. So I think we should try and analyze F1 ourselves and the F1 title race, which is yeah. is probably the biggest and most exciting story that's come out of F1 in quite a few years so obviously i'm slightly biased once again because i'm half dutch and therefore i'm a big max verstappen fan <laughs> i love to see him win week in week out and what a bloke as well but um toby i was wondering who obviously verstappen now has a 19 point lead he won in mexico at the weekend and he won in austin the gp before that so is there any way at all that you can see hamilton coming back and winning the championship? Uh, well, the only way I can see it probably happening is if there were to be a DNF for Max, something would, you know, if it was, he takes a penalty somewhat, uh, you know, it's going to it's gonna be a lot, basically, uh, mm. particularly with Brazil. Red Bull have had uh, some success there. Max won last year as well. So, I mean, it's it's not looking too great. I think, the obviously, the, the plus for Hamilton might be that Qatar and Saudi Arabia, we haven't raced there before. Uh, so it'll be a kind of a whole new experience for both drivers, and Hamilton maybe will be hoping that he can kind of be coursing back. Uh, but it's looking increasingly ever more likely that Max will win. Mm-hmm. And Jack, I have no idea if you're an F1 fan at all or know anything about F1, but um, what, what's your opinion on the title race? And do you think if Verstappen did win, do you think he'd deserve to win? Is I mean, big question, but is he the better driver out of the two of them? I'm not going to lie. I I used to be quite into Formula One, maybe eight, nine years ago. I've My interest has since waned. I still follow it. Um, so I know who's leading and I know who's driving in which car, but mm-hmm. I can't particularly give too much insight into the fight between Red Bull and Mercedes. I can't lie. So... I'll probably skip over me for this section. And Mitchell, I'll just do you know anything about F1 yourself? Or yeah, a little bit. I mean, I'm not like majorly invested in anything like football, but um, yeah, no, it, it's caught my eye a lot more this year because of the, everything going off. Um, to be fair, the, the ones that I have watched, like one of them, I watched like Bottas absolutely stormed with a lot of them. So I was like, oh, this guy, you know, he's doing great. And then I saw the standings, and I was like, oh, it's not even close, is it? Um, I think it's quite remarkable how far out Hamilton and Verstappen are. But yeah, like it'd be obviously 
pains me to see someone other than Lewis Hamilton winning as, you know, thoroughbred Englishman. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, it, it's nice to see, it's nice to see a bit of competition, eh? Um, I think it would, it would be deserved. Yeah, Verstappen's raced very well. I think um, the score needs it as well. I think yeah, it's, yeah, it's been, absolutely. We've done it by Mercedes for quite a long time on the hybrid area. And it feels like there's changes coming next year, which would be great. Um, and so cars will be able to follow more easily. But Red Bull have kind of had to work towards getting back to the kind of playing yeah. field. The same. Cool. It's nice to, it's really, I think it's really, really it'd be really great if the staff would win. I'm not a massive Hamilton fan myself, even though I'm a Brit, but uh, it'd be great for the sport nonetheless. I agree. I think, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming. I think Hamilton's, he's probably had his day, you know, he's won, he's won an awful lot. And it was sort of, I think, especially here, it sort of just became like a bit of complacency of, oh, Hamilton's going to win, regardless of the race, regardless of the standing, like everything, he, he was the winner. So it's really nice to see, like, actually a, a bit of a race going on. In fact, one that Hamilton really isn't, really isn't winning. Um, so, yeah, it, it's good for the sport. It was certainly in, like, increased interest again to see, to see him second on the podium rather than first. Um, so yeah, it's certainly been a more entertaining watch this season, I think. Because even the previous title race, which was close, which was between Rosberg and Hamilton, that was within a team. So as mm. as you're saying, it's good that it's being expanded out, and other teams with other interests are coming in, like Red Bull. And hopefully, as you say, next year, Toby, that will become even more diverse, and even more teams will become involved. Maybe even Ferrari, despite their troubles over the past few years. Who knows? Who knows? They Parallel could. Races, aren't they? They are McLaren with Lando Norris, who's also a very good young British driver, and yeah, seems like an all all round great guy as well. Yeah. But um, I should probably should probably ask quickly before before we go on to this section, how much the three of you know about tennis? So could you could you nod your head if you know anything remotely about tennis? Okay, for the listeners. Jack and Jack and Toby are nodding. Mitchell is is very much back in the one, guys. Very good answer, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so there's Emma Raducanu, who amazingly won the U.S. Open despite only being 18 years old last time around. She's now got a new coach who whose name was completely I've completely forgotten his name, which I probably shouldn't have done. Elvin Nels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he's he's Angelique Kerber's ex-coach. So this is this has been a big ongoing story because Emerald Ikanu post the US Open decided to effectively sack but kind of get rid of her old coach because she didn't believe he had enough experience at the top of the sport, which is slightly harsh considering he just led her to a title triumph. And since that title triumph, she has, you could say, struggled. She's lost quite a few times. She's gone out in the first round of I believe it's Indian Wells, and she's lost again yesterday to a person who's ranked 105 in the world or something like that, which has led Eddie Jones, the rugby England rugby coach, to somewhat questionably question her, um, which is slightly dodgy, but yeah, that's, that's Eddie Jones for you. But um, Jack, I was wondering, do you think this coaching move is right for to get Emma Raducanu back on track? And do you think... Was basically was the US Open, this might be a bit harsh to say, was it a flash in the pan or does she genuinely have the talent to to consistently win Grand Slams? 
Well, it, it, it would be too harsh to call it a fashion of She did amazingly well at Wimbledon as well, which I feel people mm. almost forget because she didn't win the tournament. Um, people don't really remember the losers. And obviously she was incredible in the US Open. And if she feels like she needs a change of coach, I do feel it's somewhat justified. Um, Belts is Angelique Kerb, obviously, former world number one, will know how to get the best out of Freddie Carney. Um, she's, she's clearly ambitious. Uh, if she's changing her coach post Grand Slam win, um, which I think shows her sort of mentality and how she will want to almost create a legacy, um, which you could argue surely has. Um, but no, I think it's quite a, if she feels she needs the change, I think it's quite a good move. And I don't know too much about the coach, but she's taken her, her time to find the right coach as well, uh, which I think is also important to get the right fit. So I think it could be a success. Uh, she's obviously got immense talent. But I, think, I don't think anyone can deny that. Um, and then the Eddie Jones comments were a bit inconsiderate. Um, because uh, he, I do feel they were taken a bit out of context in the way he was trying to tell his, um, I forgot the name of the 18 year old who's joined his squad, but trying to say, keep them grounded and not be distracted by. But obviously, if she won the US Open, it's, it's quite a difficult thing not to be distracted by all the glitz and the glam that comes with it. But no, I think I think it's probably the right move. She feels like she needs a change to move up to an even better level. Mm-hmm. And so, Toby, obviously, Jack Jack mentioned Eddie Jones's comments there, and I think Eddie Jones was effectively, as as Jack mentioned, was saying the distractions. Obviously, Radikan, who was justifiably and completely within her rights to attend all these all these kind of festivals and stuff like that and be on the front cover of magazines which was actually before the US Open so I'm not sure what Jones was talking about there but so what do you think are the reasons behind Radicani's kind of dip in form post the US Open do you think it is simply I mean you see in to use a footballing analogy Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw have fallen off post the Euros do you think it's just coming down off such a high and then obviously you're going to have to go downhill as a result before you can eventually pick yourself back up. Would you say that's the reason? Uh, potentially. I think there's, I think she just had maybe a lot of uncertainty and she's, it's a whole different world. For her. I think, you know, we're quick to forget that she's, you know, while she is a one, she is only 18 years old. You know, this is all, it's all come on her quite, quite quickly. Uh, and she's had this all uncertainty with the coach for a while. She's had a lot more expectation it's going to take a lot of time to deal with it. And as Jack said, I think she's, she's right in the sense that she's taken the time to get the, a new coach in and someone who has a positive mindset like Belts is kind of, he'll have, he'll have that kind of that same attitude and same kind of mindset as Radicane. And she needs that. I think she needs to kind of keep progressing forward instead of, you know, thinking that the U S open is something that's going to have a, you know, 
passes and legacy forever. She needs, she wants to, and she needs to kind of keep moving and keep, you know, having that positive mindset to win more Grand Slams. Uh, and so I think there's, it's kind of only a faltering because it's only been a kind of time of uncertainty. And she'll have that. She'll have more time in the future. She'll have the Australian Open as well. Mm. Um, so it's just about settling down and finding a feet again. And hopefully she'll kick on. And hopefully she'll kick on because she clearly has immense amounts of talent, as does the Raw Sport podcast. And I think it's at this stage that we should bring this first episode of Series 2 of the podcast to a close. It's been quite a varied podcast. We've discussed many different topics and hopefully given the sporting kind of ignoramuses amongst you, a good grounding <laughs> of, of the sporting stories of the day before we can get properly stuck into some more in-depth topics in the future. So thank you to the three of you for joining me. Toby, I know that you've you've really put the podcast as one of the things you want to take forward. So I'm sure you'll be hearing some podcasts hosted by Toby in the future. Yeah, unfortunately, so, you'll be hearing a lot more of me. <laughs> so... Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all again very soon. Goodbye.